It's rich. It's lavish. It's bottomless. It's extravagant. It's inexhaustible. God's grace is greater. It's greater than the guilt of our sin. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with Part 7 of War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. You might remember fondly the time-honored and cherished hymn of Julia Johnston, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. There really is nothing greater than the grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Well, so far you've learned about the source of quarrels, practical steps to resolve them, and the real sin behind all conflict. But on today's program, the first refreshing ray of hope appears. God gives a greater grace. And Tom, there really is nothing greater than the grace of God, is there? That's right, Bill. I mean, ultimately, James is setting the grace of God against the backdrop of what we've learned so far, that our sin, the sin behind our conflict is adultery. It's adultery against God because it betrays the fact that we are living for our own pleasures. Let me just encourage you to really understand and be encouraged by the hope that James is going to present us today. However great our sin, the grace of God is greater. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now as we discover more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. When I was a senior in high school, I almost drowned on a canoe trip on the Blackwater River in Florida. And I still vividly remember that event, having sunk for the third time beneath the water, unable on that third effort to break the surface, I looked up through the murky water and saw the hand of my friend stretched out toward me. And I remember reaching up through the water and grabbing with a couple of my fingers to a couple of his fingers and the wonderful joy, the overwhelming sense of relief that came into my soul with the first gasp of fresh air. I can tell you that that's how James 4, 6 is going to feel to you today. James is both practical and he's extremely pointed. He is absolutely relentless as well. He's held the standard so high that at times it's easy even for genuine Christians to wonder if they're in the faith. But today we come to a passage that provides great hope. We come to what many have called as one of the most encouraging passages in all of Scripture. And it's buried in the middle of this relentless letter that frankly sounds a lot like some of the prophets of the Old Testament. You see, in this paragraph, James outlines for us three practical steps for dealing with sinful conflict in our lives. Three eminently practical steps to resolve the fighting and arguing that is a part of our lives. And the three steps he's giving us here don't have to do with resolving the issue in which we're disagreeing, but rather understanding the real problems that lie behind the conflict and dealing with conflict 
not at the level of the argument or the disagreement, but at the heart. The first step is identify the true source of conflict. You see that in verses 1 to 3. We looked at that extensively. The true source is bound up in the word in verse 1, pleasures, and again in verse 3, pleasures. It's a word that means to crave, to lust after, to want something. You see, the true source of the conflict in our lives is not the person with whom we're arguing. It's not the issue over which we're arguing. Instead, it's our own sinful hearts. Because we crave something to satisfy our own pleasure. And when someone gets in the way of what we want, then arguing and fighting erupts. So if we're going to deal with our sin of arguing and fighting, we have got to identify the true source. It's the pursuit of our pleasure. The second step that he gives us is in verses 4 and 5. We need to magnify the real sin behind conflict. Magnify the real sin. And in verse 4, he gives it to us in one word, spiritual adultery. You adulteresses. Last time we traced James' logic, because at first glimpse that seems to be a logical leap. But here's what he's saying. Arguing shows that we are living for the pursuit of our pleasure. And living for pleasure is friendship with the world. And friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. So in other words, if there is a pattern of arguing in our lives, it shows a heart guilty of spiritual adultery. A quarrelsome and argumentative spirit is merely a symptom of a spiritual cancer that is raging within the heart. You've got to understand the true source of conflict. It's the pursuit of our pleasure, and you've really got to magnify the real sin. It's spiritual adultery. You love God too little, and you love your pleasures and the sinful pleasures of the world too much. If you want to truly deal with arguing and fighting that's a part of your life, you have to start at your heart, identify the true source, and secondly, magnify the real sin. Now that brings us to the third practical step, which we'll begin to look at together today. It is apply the right solution. Apply the right solution to conflict. What exactly is the right solution? Well, James here gives it to us in a single word. It's the word grace. Notice chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Every word in that brief sentence deserves our careful study. Every word is like a diamond that when you hold it to the light and with each small turn, you see a different facet of that stone and each different facet radiates a brilliance of its own. Let's look carefully at each of the facets of that statement. The sentence begins with a simple conjunction, but he gives a greater grace. This little word, but, is one of the greatest words in our Bible because it often marks the contrast between our sin and God's grace. Reminded of 
the book of Romans, you remember that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul begins his indictment of all humanity to show us our sinfulness. And he begins to track through the way our sinfulness expresses itself, the way our depravity expresses itself. And he does that from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. But then in chapter 3 of Romans and verse 21, he writes this, But now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. For all have sinned, but we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I think of Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, one of my favorite chapters, Paul does the same thing. He begins in the first three verses by highlighting just how terrible our sinful condition was, and he paints it in the darkest of colors. But in verse 4, he begins by saying, But God, but God, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is one of my favorite preachers, preached an entire message on those two words, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The occurrence in James chapter 4 of this little conjunction, but, is no less significant. Because the word but is a word that marks a distinct contrast with what has been said before. Now, in the immediate context... It's a contrast with our sinfulness. In verse 1, with our quarreling and arguing. In verses 1 and through 3, with our occasionally living to pursue our pleasure and the satisfaction of it. In verse 4, our spiritual adultery. But in the larger context, this statement of chapter 4, verse 6, follows a long series of difficult commands. Listen to what he's commanded us. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, James says, accept and rejoice in your trials. In chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, he says, refuse temptation. Say no to temptation. From verse 19 of chapter 1 through the end of the chapter, he says, respond properly to the word of God. Then you come to chapter 2. In the first 13 verses of chapter 2, he tells us that we must all reject all forms of prejudice and partiality. In chapter 2, verse 14, through the end of the chapter, we come really to what is the core and heart of his letter, where he told us that we must live in a consistent pattern of obedience that reflects the reality of our faith. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, we must exercise some self-control over our tongues. The most difficult thing to control. Chapter 3, verses 14 to 18, He says, you need to become biblically wise. You need to become spiritually mature. And then when we come to verse 1 of chapter 4, we learn that we need to stop quarreling, stop arguing, and stop fighting. So when we come to James chapter 4, verse 5, just before verse 6, he tells us that God is a jealous God who will tolerate no rivals for our affection. So the immediate context of these words is the declaration by James that God demands our absolute, undivided allegiance. 
Now, when you and I look at all of those commands, when we look at all that I've just taken you through, we are left hopeless because we have sinned in every one of those areas. There isn't a single one of those examples that I just gave you that you and I have not violated before God. We are totally guilty before God. That's the context of verse 6. But, but he. You see, God responds to our sin. He responds to our lack of undivided allegiance to him, and he responds in mercy and in grace. I love those words. Mercy, of course, is God's goodness responding to our misery, and grace is God's goodness responding to our guilt. God demands perfect obedience. He demands undivided allegiance, but God. This little word, but, reminds us that there's hope. Notice the second facet of this gem of divine grace. But he gives a greater grace. This is, of course, a reference to God. The same God who issued all the commands that we just reviewed comes to our aid. The same God who is jealous over our spiritually adulterous hearts shows us grace. The same God who says his name is jealous now tells us that his name is grace. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 34. I want you to see that God can be both of these at the same time. He declares himself to be. Exodus chapter 34, of course, the context here is the people of God are at Sinai. And in Exodus 34, verse 12, God says this to the people. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you were to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their asherim. God says, I want your absolute, undivided affection and loyalty. Verse 14, for you shall not worship any other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is jealous over your absolute affection and loyalty to him. His name is Jealous. And yet I want you to turn back to the previous chapter, Exodus 33, because this revelation occurs in an interesting context. In Exodus 33, you'll remember verse 13, Moses asks this of God. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways. The word ways is a Hebrew word that means a well-worn rut. It describes a predictable pattern of behavior, habits, if you will. God, reveal your habits of behavior to me. Tell me what you're like. Tell me the ruts that you run down. And then in verse 18, Moses asked something else. Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. So here Moses is asking, God, I want you to declare to me what's true about you. Teach me what you're like, and let me see some visible display of who you are. God responds in verse 19, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. There's that visible display. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. There's explaining his ways. 
And he adds this, and I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious. He already lets us know that his grace is a sovereign grace. He decides on whom to bestow it and when. There's no claim on him. It's his own decision. It's in that context then, in verse 5 of chapter 34, we read this. In response to Moses' two requests, here's what happens. Chapter 34, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him. There's the visible display, some visible expression of the glory of God that Moses doesn't describe for us. And then, verse 6 says, he proclaimed this. So here is God teaching Moses his ways, his predictable patterns of behavior. His habits, if you will. He says, it's my habit to be compassionate and gracious. Gracious. The God who is jealous, in the same context, says he is gracious. The jealous God who demands our allegiance must give us grace, both for forgiveness and for the power to obey him. Augustine, the great theologian of the 5th century, understood the connection between God's empowering grace and obedience in his confessions, which if you haven't read, I strongly encourage you to read. Basically, it's a 300-page autobiography in the form of a prayer to God. The entire book is one long prayer tracing God's work through his life. In that book, in his autobiography, he writes this, give me the grace, O Lord, to do as you command and command me to do what you will. Listen to what he says again. Give me the grace to do as you command. Augustine said, listen, God, if you don't act, if you don't in grace empower me, I cannot obey you. O holy God, when your commands are obeyed, it is from you that we receive the power to obey them. Some of you who are familiar with that period of history know that Augustine's arch-rival was a British monk by the name of Pelagius. Pelagius read this statement in the Confessions and absolutely hated it because he saw it as an assault on human goodness, on human freedom, and on human responsibility. Pelagius' favorite saying was this, if I ought, I can. If I ought, I can. Augustine, on the other hand, argued exactly the opposite. Augustine said that man has no capacity to obey God, including even the command to believe in Christ, and that if we are to have any hope of obeying God, then God himself must act and empower us to do it. But God, God does act. James wants us to know that he acts in grace because it's his character to be gracious. Scripture tells us, by the way, this is true of all of the members of the Trinity, as you would expect. It's true of the Father, 1 Peter 5.10 He's called the God of all grace. It's true of the Son. In Acts 15, 11, we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. It's true of the Spirit. Hebrews 10, 29 calls him the Spirit of grace. 
You see, God the Father is the fountain of grace. God the Son is the channel through which God's grace arrives in our world. And the Holy Spirit is the applier or bestower of grace, personal and individually. But God. Notice the third facet of this amazing saying, but he, that is God, gives a greater grace. He gives. You know, God's giving of grace started to us when there was no world, no universe, no time, and no space. In fact, there was absolutely nothing but God. There was nothing but God. You see, it was grace and grace alone that lies behind God's eternal choice of us. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul writes to his young son in the faith, and in verse 9 of chapter 1, he says this, God saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, listen to this, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God's grace began in your life before you were ever created. It began in your life before there was anything but God. God began to show you grace by graciously choosing you to be his own. And then, as Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time came, after the world was created, when the right time came, God sent his son into the world. And when God sent his son into the world to die as our substitute, that too was pure grace. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says it's by the grace of God that Christ tasted death for us. And then fast forward the real to today, to your life and my life. In time, in our lives, when God interrupted our lives, and as Ephesians 2, 5 says, made us alive, when he granted us repentance and faith, when he declared us righteous, when he adopted us into his family, when he set us apart for himself, that moment in time, that event that we call salvation, that too was all of grace. Of course, all of us know Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, that is the entire act of salvation, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. We understand that, don't we? That God's grace started in eternity past. It brought Christ to the earth, and in our own lives, it interrupted our lives and brought salvation to us. But listen, God's grace doesn't merely extend into eternity past. God's grace for you and me extends into eternity future. We're very familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, but listen to verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he made us alive, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God will spend eternity lavishing us with grace. To quote Newton, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise, praise for his grace, than when we first begun. But look again at James chapter 4, verse 6. 
The Greek word for gives is translated in the present English tense. It's also in the present tense in the Greek, but we could translate it a little differently. We could say it this way, he is giving greater grace. It means it's constant. It's constantly occurring, and it's now. You see, not only did God show us grace in eternity past, not only in sending Christ, not only at the moment of salvation, and not only will there be grace in eternity future, but right now, today, God is constantly giving us an ongoing supply of grace. Because not only were we chosen by grace and saved by grace, but we have an ongoing need for grace to live out our Christian lives. And God is continually giving us a supply of grace. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his current series, War and Peace, Learning to Deal with Conflict. Tom will have part eight for you on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.